We know that sleep deficit changes the way that we make choices. We know that the food we eat changes the way we make choices. We know that stress changes the way we make choices. So now look at what we have had in the last year. We've had elevated levels of chronic stress across the planet. We've had an increased reliance on comfort foods, which are the foods, unfortunately, that tend to be very high in refined carbohydrates and unhealthy fats, the things that cause inflammation, that damage our gut microbiome. Those are both independently linked to worse quality of decisions. So the, the bottom line to all of this is if we're trying to change our future, whether it's for ourselves, for our patients, or really for the, the world as a whole, we have to look at how we make decisions and we have to escape from this blame-based mentality and start looking at things like our food. Welcome to the reInvent Health Podcast. We are all motivated by meaning, which is why the reInvent Podcast aims to bring you a wide range of information, focusing on all aspects of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being, so that you can make the changes towards a more meaningful, healthier, and happier life. And now, your host, Nikki Robertson. Hi, everyone, and thank you again for joining me, and welcome to the reInvent Health Podcast. How much thought have you given lately to changing habits and behaviors that really don't serve you in the long term? A lot, I'm sure, but habits are notoriously tricky to change, or are they? Dr. Austin Palmetto is an internal medicine physician and New York Times bestselling author. His focus is on helping others to improve, recognize, and change their habits through better decision-making. Now, most of us have come to realize that in many ways, we are what we eat, yet we don't always realize that the quality of our sleep, how much we exercise, and our exposure to nature deeply influences our brain health and overall quality of life. Dr. Pomada shares his thoughts and tips on what we can all do to create better health outcomes in the future, starting right now. So, uh, you know, as you said, I, I had kind of a, a unique context and environment that I grew up in. I had my dad who has been interested in going outside the, the box as far as neurology ideas. Um, and then my mom who is in many ways steeped in kind of like Eastern cultures and, and you know, was bringing in um, aspects of essential oils and homeopathy and stuff early on. And with all of that in my background, I decided to go into English and decided I wanted to write books, young adult fiction, actually, of all things. And kind of a number of things happened while I was in college as far as, you know, the the pushes and pulls towards other areas of interest. but the long and short of it is that I realized I wanted to be able to help people with their medical problems. I think it was something that was kind of always there, potentially even in my genes. My grandfather, my dad's dad is a neurosurgeon or was a neurosurgeon. Uh -huh. um, and, and where I settled on that was feeling like there was this obvious problem, which was we have chronic preventable diseases and that there are things we can do by definition that will stop those from happening. There are things we can do to reverse the course of those diseases in many cases. And so I thought, again, a lot because of my experience growing up, that if I would go and get this education, that I would then be capable 
goal of helping people to reverse their problems to prevent them from getting these conditions. So I went to medical school and then I decided to go into internal medicine, which in the States is basically like kind of general medicine. You can subspecialize, become a gastroenterologist or a pulmonologist or an infectious disease doctor. But I really wanted to get a sense as to what was going on with things like diabetes, high blood pressure, and coronary artery disease, dementia, what were the mechanisms, what was known in science about these conditions? And I thought that would be sufficient. I'm sure you've heard this story so many times before. You think that you have the tools and you realize you're completely undergunned for the actual problem. But I did uh, my residency, which was three years of largely, uh, you know, primary care and hospital-based care. And I found I was getting really good at managing acute exacerbations of chronic diseases. So somebody comes in with heart failure, their heart is already in bad shape. I was able to get the fluid off of their bodies, you know, the swelling of their legs, the fluid in their lungs, so they could get back to close to where they were at before, send them back on their way. Um, Or people who had COPD, which is a chronic lung disease, they could come in with an exacerbation. I would give them steroids, I would give them antibiotics, they would get close to where they were, and then I'd send them back into the world. But in my primary care clinic, I was failing time and time again with prevention. And it was at every level, right? So you have different types of prevention, primary, secondary, tertiary prevention. And I just wasn't able to get people to follow through with the lifestyle interventions, even with the pharmaceutical interventions I was prescribing. And this frustrated me, as I know it frustrates a lot of providers And it led to a series of many conversations with my dad, David Perlmutter, and he's a neurologist. And so he's really focused on the brain. And we sat with this idea for a while, which was people aren't doing the necessary stuff despite knowing what they're doing. And that we keep just blaming patients for their lack of willpower, their lack of self-control. Sure. And over time, what we realized is that we're not looking at the right variables. So when you think about the things that go into a decision, not you, I'm sure you don't think this way, but many people, myself included, thought about it as a willpower issue and an information issue. Mm -hmm. So so if you uh, are somebody who comes in with, let's say, elevated blood sugar, not quite diabetes, all I have to do is tell you that you need to eat healthier and start exercising And all you need to do is have the necessary willpower and then the behavior changes. But up to 80 plus percent of the time, people don't change their behavior. And there was a series of studies that really opened my eyes to this. And it was looking at people who have had coronary artery bypass graft surgery, basically open heart surgery, where they put new arteries onto your heart when it's in bad shape. And it's about as extreme as a procedure as you can have. They crack open the chest and they put in these new blood vessels. And so after you get this procedure, the cardiologist or the cardiovascular surgeon will recommend a specific diet, a heart healthy diet. And I was thinking to myself, these people must all follow through, right? No one's more motivated than they are. They literally just had open heart surgery. Mm. And of the patients who had this surgery, about 40% of women would stick to the dietary recommendations. In men, it was about 20%. So that made me think, if even they don't stick to the plan, what are we missing here? 
And then I looked at cardiologists, right? Cardiologists have the information. They must certainly stick to a heart healthy diet. Uh -uh. And yet only 20% of cardiologists actually eat the recommended portions of vegetables each day. Yeah. So all of this kind of combined to this central idea, which is we're getting decision-making wrong. And what we can do differently is we can start understanding that our brains are driving our choices. And that if we want to change our choices, if we want to be able to help people prevent diseases, if we want to help ourselves to make better choices, we have to look at what's happening inside the brain. Wow. So that's that's kind of the, the version of the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years of my life that leads yeah. up to our conversation today. That's only recently have people really, and especially in the last year, grasped the fact that what they eat and how they behave and how they sleep and whether or not they exercise impacts their physical health, their body, how they're feeling physically. But I think the brain is another frontier where because we can't see it and we can't really feel what's going on, say for a headache, um, it's almost again too remote for most people to grasp the fact that not only what you eat becomes your physical body, but it also impacts your decision-making, your ability to change behaviors, um, your brain health, whether or not you're going to get dementia later on in life. And this is a big key. In, and I, I can completely relate to what you've said because I spend every day trying to help people make better decisions about their health. Right. And you're absolutely correct. There are more women than men who take that step. And out of those women, half of them can get it right. Um, yeah. For the vast majority, it takes a long time and a lot of reframing and rethinking their value system and their belief system to start making these changes. So this is- this I, I is think probably, you're absolutely right. This is su such a, an interesting topic because if it was so easy, we wouldn't have an obesity crisis. We probably wouldn't have this COVID crisis because we'd be healthy. So what, right. what have you found in the last you know, couple of months, couple of years that talks to how do we change our behavior? How do we change our brains? Sure. Well, let me speak real quick to what you just mentioned because I think that's key. We don't realize that all of us, especially those in the health professions, are in the business of behavior change. That's what we're trying to do. We have uh, specialties, people who are behavioral scientists who work specifically on behavior change, but we don't recognize that as health providers, that's our job too. And what's fascinating about it is that you can get a ton of education as to what happens in the heart and what leads up to the development of heart disease, what certain drugs do to treat heart disease. We get a whole lot of education as to what happens with, you know, diabetes. And I'd argue a lot of it isn't all that well-founded. We're now understanding it's probably more to do with insulin resistance than it does to do with the blood sugar. But when it comes to behavior change, we don't bring any of our biology, any of our knowledge of biology to bear. And I think it's exactly what you just described. We look at the brain as a black box. Um, we look at what happens within the brain as somehow outside the bounds of what science can tell us. And I mean, it's categorically false when you know how much research there is showing what happens within the brain. But the other piece of this, which I think is important, is that I think there's a, a lack of desire to really look at the brain objectively, to look at decisions objectively. And part of that comes from the idea that we, we feel like uh, the identity, the self lives in the brain. And we don't want to destroy this illusion that there is this separate entity, the decision maker, 
that exists independent of the rest of our bodies. And when you start to understand that what we believe is this, you know, immutable self, uh, a, a mind-body dualism kind of model of the decision maker and the body, it kind of distracts us from being able to make better choices. And as a quick example of this, uh, some of the the most um, consistent data shows that molecules like ghrelin and leptin play a role in how we decide to eat food. So ghrelin tends to make people hungrier. When you give people ghrelin, they eat more food. Leptin in a healthy person leads to satiety, leads to a decreased appetite. So when you change those molecules or measure those molecules, it correlates with patterns of decision-making around what we eat. And that's very well substantiated. If you Google that, you'll find it in all of the studies. So that tells me hormones influence our choices around food. And I think just getting any example like that opens the door to where all of a sudden you say, Mm -hmm. wait a second, my choices aren't just a reflection of what I consciously want. They're a reflection of these chemical signals in my bloodstream that make it to my brain through the nerves in the brain, through the immune system of the brain, that are going to lead me to one outcome or another. Why that is so empowering is because we have largely existed in a blame-based mentality of, quote, bad decisions. Somebody makes a bad choice, whatever that might be, we blame them. We say, you are a bad person. Think about you know criminal activity. We don't ask, why did a person make those choices? We say, they did it because they're a bad person. Case yeah. closed. Now I feel good about sending this person to prison. You know, it, it's kind of a, a very basic version of a loop in which a person makes bad decisions because they're a bad person and we can punish that and feel good about it. But it's the same thing in medicine. It's the same thing in behavior change in medicine where we tell somebody to do something for their health. They don't do it. We don't say, hey, well, let's look at some other variables. And I think this gets to the question you were asking, which is, you know, what's been happening in the last year or so? And also, what can we do about it? We know that sleep deficit changes the way that we make choices. We know that the food we eat changes the way we make choices. We know that stress changes the way we make choices. So now look at what we have had in the last year. We've had elevated levels of chronic stress across the planet. We've had an increased reliance on comfort foods, which are the foods, unfortunately, that tend to be very high in refined carbohydrates and unhealthy fats, the things that cause inflammation that damage our gut microbiome. Those are both independently linked to worse quality of decisions. So the, the bottom line to all of this is if we're trying to change our future, whether it's for ourselves, for our patients, or really for the the world as a whole, we have to look at how we make decisions and we have to escape from this blame-based mentality and start looking at things like our food, which you said this, it changes not only the physical structure of our bodies, but I would say it changes who we are. Our identity is is not static. So when you put food into your body, you are actually changing who you are at as a person. Yeah. And I think for people listening who can't relate to that, you only have to look at a young child when you give them a lot of sugar, their personality changes. When you drink alcohol, your personality changes. This is something you're ingesting that affects your cognitive ability. So it's very obvious when we start breaking it down, but we don't think of it as in the the junk food that we're eating every day or the cereals that we are having for breakfast. These two over time start impacting the way the brain works. And we haven't put it to that because 
Well, food is convenience for so many people. And only now are we really questioning what goes into our food. It's, it's, it's getting to that critical mass. And I think that's so important. Yeah. And one other thing to that point, you know, I think there's kind of like this mentality um, that the only thing that matters is how you make a choice when you get to the moment of choice. Like you're on the spot, you're uh, sitting down at the restaurant and you're going to look at the menu and you're going to choose the healthy option or the unhealthy option. And it's all on you, right? You get to decide. No one else is coercing you. You get to make that conscious choice. And the truth is that that isn't how it works. So when you think about the fact that children across the world are given advertisements for unhealthy food, like basically any cereal product, or when you look at the, the drinks that they're marketed their sodas, their fruit juices, they're filled with sugar. That not only changes the body in the moment, but it alters our brains to make those bad choices more likely in the future. And there's a couple of ways in which that one that might happen. One is by altering our fat cells. We know that when you have increased levels of certain types of fat cells called visceral fat cells, that there's more inflammation in the body. And that inflammation has been correlated with more impulsive decision-making. But we also know that our brains absorb what's happening outside, right? The information from outside, it changes our preferences. So when you give a kid advertisements for and have them eat these unhealthy cereals, oh. they will decades later show a preference for that unhealthy cereal. So we're embedding it early in life. And then what we do, which I think is, kind of the worst part of this whole thing is we say we're protecting consumer choice by making everything equally available. It's not the way that the brain works. It's a really convenient way if you're marketing an unhealthy food to hide. It's the same thing you could do with cigarettes, right? You say, oh, well, I'm protecting consumer choice, but there's a reason that there's taxation on cigarettes across the planet. It's because we want to make it less likely that people will actually buy the cigarettes and it does have an effect. So I guess what I'm saying is there's a really fascinating double standard where we understand that the way things are marketed to us changes our brains. And yet we tell people it's all on you. And if you make a bad choice, that's your fault. Yeah, you're so right. Because I mean, advertising, it sets up our value system. It doesn't um, associate us with the food. It associates, associates us with who you will become and the life you will have if you drink that drink. Cigarette advertising in the 80s was very little about cigarettes and a lot about ski resorts and yachts because that's what you aspire to and that creates our value system. So if you align yourself with that brand, people are going to see you as having that lifestyle. That's what they were selling as a lifestyle. And that is what embeds our value systems. And I really believe that nowadays where we don't have the structure that we had with families where, you know, everyone was cooking together and in the kitchen together, very much what goes on in the Mediterranean countries. And probably the reason why they tend to be healthier than the rest of the Western world is because our value systems were created in the family around a social bond, a social support system, where now our values are created around social media, how we are seen by the outside world, how the outside world perceives us. And this kind of marketing is so pervasive, especially with young people, with young kids, with teenagers. It is, it's, it's almost in and of itself becoming a massive psychological social problem. So it's, it's an insidious problem. 
And it's not obvious if you don't start asking the questions, like you've just said. We've got to start asking how behaviors are formed. And, you know, sugar just beds down and almost anchors that behavior because of the release of the, the, the serotonin, the dopamines, the, the, the neurotransmitters in the brain that just make it feel that much. It seals the deal, really. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Sure. I think too, you know, there's so much that we could pull out from what you just said. I think it was a really great overview of how reality uh, has shifted in just the last decade or two. And you see this in the form of the foods that we're eating, which, you know, you could argue that most of them aren't really foods and that they really aren't nutrient dense at all. Yeah. Um, but also the content that we're consuming otherwise. And the way that I look at this is the outputs we have which is things like health and happiness, are a reflection of the quality of our inputs. And you can think about these inputs in kind of two ways. One is what goes through your mouth, the food and drinks. And then one is what goes through your other senses. Um, and I think there is increasingly an understanding that food influences our health, that food influences our mental health. But what people haven't necessarily connected yet is that what comes in through your eyes and ears plays an equally important role on determining your brain chemistry. There's something, you know, you, you can see in a meal that there's something physical about it, that that physical mass goes into your body and does something. You don't, right, you're not hungry anymore once you put that into your body. But when you are just watching the news or listening to the radio and it's scary, right, it's inducing fear and it's inducing anxiety, it's hard to make that connection that you're really having the same activation patterns of immune cells, let's say inflammation, that you would get if you were to eat an unhealthy meal. And it's the same kind of patterns that, that lead to worse brain function. So chronic stress, psychological stress, correlates with higher risk for dementia, correlates with worse decision-making. Similarly, eating a whole bunch of terrible foods correlates with worse decision-making correlates with higher risk for dementia. And the reason for that is because it still gets to, gets converted into the same pathways in our brains. So I see a lot of people saying something like, I'm detoxing all my foods, right? I'm doing the juice cleanse. I'm going to make sure that I'm only putting healthy stuff into my body. But also you're on social media for three hours a day and you're constantly scrolling through and trying to make sure you get as many likes as you can. There's a disconnect there. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's an easy thing to figure out, right? People may have different needs to, to be on social media, to be watching the news, et cetera. But I think that it's the pernicious influence as it relates to the fact that it is still programming our brains in a negative way, unless we are aware of what we're taking in. What did we do 20 years ago before this came mm -hmm. around? How did we entertain ourselves? How did we get into these states? I can't even remember. And it is, it's getting out of control. And one you know, part that really interests me is what is this doing to the young brain? What is this doing? Sure. You know, in the last year, our children have been homeschooled via the internet. So they log on to their online classrooms. They've had access to devices to an extent that most parents are a little bit nervous about. Um, so what does that constant input and you know, my nine-year-old had a social media account and she came to me one day and said, I'm not getting many likes. What's wrong with me? And that's the day I canceled a social media account. It's like, this is ridiculous. Your life 
does not hinge on who happens to like your videos. This is, it's, it's got to go. It's like, you can have it back when you're 16, maybe, maybe later. Uh, so what does it actually do to the young brain? This, this never ending input of not only the artificial light, but the artificial sense of self that comes from having this connection to this, this non-reality. Well, I'm thinking back to, let's say when I was nine, so um, several decades ago, and smartphones just weren't a thing. You, you call your friend's house, and if they were home, you would talk to them, and if not, you would leave a message. And, you know, I think that things were just kind of, there was more boredom, and it led to more opportunities as far as being creative. Um, and, you know, you had to find something to do if you wanted to create uh, an activity, you had to actually do that as opposed to what we have now, which is the moment you're even slightly bored yeah, or even almost non-consciously, you're picking up your phone and you're seeing what's happening. So to be fair, social um, kind of comparison isn't anything new. And some people will say that's been around, you know, for, for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. But I think that what you have now is all of these kind of loops on hyperdrive. So you have social comparison happening in the span of moments. Um, you have a, a false comparison in that you're comparing yourself to altered renditions of other people. And in some cases, let's be honest, people are paying to get likes and it's not something that you'll see, but you will still compare yourself to them. But as far as, as background as to where we are right now, American adults, at least, are spending around 11 hours a day interacting with screens. And of that, you have about four and a half hours of TV time, about two to three hours on social media. And the CDC, or the Center for Disease Control, recently put out data showing that kids aged 8 to 10 are spending about six hours a day on their screens. Um, and that becomes nine hours when they're aged 11 to 13. Wow. So very clearly, we're spending a lot of time on our devices. I think the bigger question is, do we know for sure that this is damaging? Do we know for sure that this is something we need to prevent in our, our young uh, adults and in our children? And I think that becomes a little bit more difficult because you, you do have increasingly data suggesting that there's a link between certain types of screen exposure, especially social media and internet use, um, and things like uh, addiction. Uh, so the United States hasn't necessarily recognized internet addiction yet, but other countries have. You have a connection between things like depression and anxiety yeah. and uh, excessive use of screens, social media. Mm -hmm. And that seems especially prevalent in young girls relative to young boys. And I think if you look at the potential mechanisms as to what it's doing there, the one that I always go back to is the opportunity cost, which is if you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else. And I think that it's very easy for adults, for children, for everyone to choose the social media, choose the TV time over anything else, over exercise, over making a healthy meal, over spending in-person time with the people we care about. Mm -hmm. And what we do know is that the things I just described are correlated with long-term benefits. So correlated with long-term health and happiness. And that has been around for thousands of years, but there's also data in the last several decades to support that, that exercise correlates with lower rates of depression, yeah. that spending time with other people correlates with lower rates of depression. So I think that's a concern is that we kind of have these solutions and we're doing things in place of those. The other things though, 
is that I, I mentioned this before as it relates to news exposure the stress mechanism is incredibly significant as it relates to how our brains are programmed. And we know for sure that young children who are exposed to high levels of chronic stress, um, adverse childhood events and early life trauma have worse outcomes. And those correlate with changes in their brain wiring. It correlates with uh, more emotional reactivity, things like anxiety and aggression. And within the brain, it kind of correlates with a decreased connection between the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system, which is more involved with emotional processing. So I think that overexposure to stress, psychological stress, it's, it's never a good thing, but some of that may be this created stress that comes from the social comparison on you know, these social media apps where social comparison is, is literally one of the principal drivers um, of people's use of it. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say on this, is, and you had mentioned this, the reality that is portrayed through our screens, especially through social media, is not actual reality. It's a sensationalized version of reality. It tends to be a polarized version of reality. And I think in many cases, that can take us away from the more nuanced conversations that are necessary for us to grow as people. And I worry that if children are exposed to this early on, it may make it harder to be able to kind of question and and look around the world and and see what is most relevant and helpful to them. I see a lot of this as it relates to politics. You see this on multiple platforms, but that people kind of get into these silos where very quickly they can cut themselves off from seeing the other side. And we know that politics in the United States, at least, has become incredibly polarized. That's not good for anyone. So I I'm concerned that in the absence of the ability to have more nuanced conversations, it's hard to do that when you only are limited to whatever 280 characters, that people will lose the ability to question and the ability to find what actually works for them. Yeah. And people are so triggered nowadays by, like you say, a couple of characters on Twitter um, without the emotional balance of being able to have a conversation and understand somebody and another side of an argument, which... I mean, what is the future for the human race? I mean, who's going to write books? Where are the Oscar Wilde's going to come from? If this is what we're being reduced to, um, this very, very um, artificial way of of, of living without any kind of mental, emotional challenge, uh, appropriate challenge. So it's up to parents. And I think parents, you know, it's so easy when you're really busy and you're strung out and you're stressed to just hand a kid a device because at least you can keep an eye on them and you can, are they really safe? That's my question is Mm -hmm. just because you can see them sitting there, what are they exposed to? What is it doing to their brain? Um, Rather let them go run out in the garden, at least, you know, bumping your head or or grazing your knee, you'll survive that, I think. It's, it's, It's so interesting to think about, you know, what is the data you're taking in when you're outside? Because it's not just about the fact that you're out there socializing with other kids. Uh, it's not just about the fact that you know you're not inside on your phone, but there's so much to be said for the role of nature exposure in especially early development in children. How exposure to animals, to microbes, to dirt um, seems like it has a really positive influence on things like risk for asthma and other conditions, um, especially these allergic type conditions. Yep, and. Um, 
there's even really fascinating research showing that rates of myopia, um, basically people not being able to see far away, have gone up dramatically. And that when kids have more nature exposure early in life, that seems to be blunted. So there are kind of all of these other things. But as you said, um, there's been a, a real shift towards a uh, more protective mentality, keeping kids inside. I mean, especially now with COVID. Sure. And um, we, we kind of assume that it's a safer alternative to put kids on our screens. And I think we don't have enough data to know for sure this is the case, but I think that it's it's so easy these days to fall victim to really persuasive um, languaging that is going to make it hard later on to kind of break the patterns that have been set up in the brain. Yeah. Um, and again, if we don't establish that early on in life, like you say, myopia, if you don't establish teach the eyes to see in the distance, you're going to suffer for the rest of your life. So what else in right. the brain is being affected? I mean, right. you you wrote an article, I think it was for Psychology Today, speaking of microbes, that there's, there's, there's microbes, bacteria that affect our cognitive function. Can we chat about that for a while? That's, that's utterly fascinating. Yeah. This is another one of those concepts which I think kind of breaks apart the idea that we are... Uh, a self separate from our bodies because, you know, I'm sure listeners will have heard something along these lines, but it turns out that we have at least as many microbes living in our bodies as we do human cells within our bodies, that we have multiple times more microbial DNA floating around in our bodies than we do our own DNA. And, you know, it's one thing if they're just kind of hanging on passengers that aren't contributing. It's one thing if they're only causing disease, but the truth of it is that these microbes, specifically the microbes that are living in our large intestine or our colon, are sending signals that are influencing our gut immune system. By the way, the majority of our immune system lives in our gut in part so it can communicate with these microbes. Um, but that the microbes are also producing molecules like short chain fatty acids that by a variety of methods go up and influence our brain function. And so this has now been tethered to the idea of our microbes influencing our mood, something called psychobiotics, which is uh, increasingly being studied, how certain strains of bacteria in the gut may have a positive impact on our mental health. And it's also being correlated with neurodegenerative conditions as potentially one of these connections between the outside world in our microbes and what happens within our brain and how our brain ages. There's even fascinating research done in animals that shows that the brain's maturation is dependent on molecules and signals coming up from the microbiome. And these, it basically shows that there are kind of negative outcomes in the brain if you uh, have mice that are, are born into these germ-free environments where they have no microbes. But when you reintroduce the microbes, that the brain kind of normalizes. So what does that mean? For the average person, I think the bigger picture is to understand that what you call you is not a you singular. It's more of a we. Yeah. That the way that's it's kind of a challenging concept, but to appreciate that your conscious version of reality is an amalgam. It's a combination of inputs coming in from all your different cells, your hormones, your immune cells for sure, but also all those microbial cells. So you're not just separate from the environment. You're actually very much a part of the environment. And this is, you know, there are a lot of people who would say, this means you have to do this, this, and this, as far as taking these probiotics, these prebiotics, 
um, these postbiotics, so things like the short-chain fatty acids themselves. But what I think is so important is just to understand the role of balance in that you need to be caring for, generally caring for your gut. You need to be generally caring for your gut immune system. You need to be caring for your microbiome. Or you're going to, through a variety of pathways, put yourself at risk for a bunch of diseases, not to mention the fact that your cognition, your mental health may suffer as well. Yeah. Yeah. And you also mentioned, I think you you briefly went into how COVID for some patients is really affecting their cognitive ability. And I've I've seen this in my practice with a couple of people who have had severe COVID where they're they can't focus. They are, it seems to me that they are experiencing post-traumatic stress symptoms. And they cannot stay on a topic for very long without veering off. And these were people who did not do that before they got ill. Do you think that this is because of more to do with the lockdown and the isolation and the fact that because we are intrinsically and extrinsically such social beings and this part of our our human blueprint has been taken away so violently in the last year, would you say that's contributing to it or is it strictly the virus or combination of the two? What are your, your feelings around that? Yeah, I think the multiple topic? choice here, yeah. <laughs> the multiple choice answers are always going to be the one that is a combination, I feel like, in these conversations. And, uh, and that's where I would land on this one as well. Um, I think it's been clearly shown that chronic stress has a negative effect on cognition and you don't have to look at the data, but if you want to, they're certainly present. Chronic stress has gone up across the world. And I think that has a lot to do with the way that cognition has kind of suffered in certain people. Social connection, uh, I mentioned, is key. And loneliness itself predicts kind of a bunch of negative outcomes, but social connection predicts better cognition, um, including protection potentially against dementia. So I think that that's another variable there. We mentioned the food that people are eating as it seems to be more junk food. Inflammation is correlated with worse cognition, and this is food that preferentially increases inflammation. But when you think about the kind of microbe piece of the argument, um, I think there are two things to consider. Um, one is that the microbiome itself may be suffering as a result of several of the things that I just described. And so that might be contributing to worse cognition. But the other piece is what might COVID itself do to the brain and, and how might that change our thinking? And so there's interesting research showing that COVID may be able to reach the brain through a couple of different ways. One is directly by kind of penetrating through um, what's called the cribiform plate and going through the olfactory nerve, which is the smell nerve, uh, which is kind of a direct route right into the central nervous system. And so there may be a connection there between the high rates of people having troubles with smell and the virus getting into the brain because that's literally a nerve issue, a central nerve issue. Yeah. So there's there's a lot to think about there, but you know the mechanisms as to what is happening in the brain as a result of COVID infection are still being determined. There's a lot of people who have been talking about the brain's immune system, these cells called microglial cells, yeah. and how the virus may activate those and then kind of trigger a brain inflammation, yeah. which could contribute to things like brain fog and headache and worse cognition overall. Makes complete sense. But the good news is inflammation can be cooled down again through our choices. 
and our decisions, yes. and you've, you've eluded, not eluded, but you've, you've pointed this out so clearly in so many of your, your, your conversations on, on um, you did an IGTV conversation on our, our ability to make a different choice. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that is so, so important because until recently, we gave our power to our doctor. If you had diabetes, well, you just take a pill. Um, and didn't own the responsibility. But when it comes to what's been going on in the last year and what's probably been going on in the last five years, what we've seen with um, lifestyle-related disease is it's putting the power back in our own hands or not the power, but the responsibility to go, fine, I've got this issue. I can fix this if I take these steps. And again, it's back to behavior change. So in the patients you've seen succeed, with dietary changes, with lifestyle changes, what do you feel is the catalyst that differentiated them from, say, the next person who just, regardless of open-heart surgery, they can't make that change? I think there are a lot of variables that are involved in a person being able to make, uh, you know, what we would call as practitioners, good choices. And I think getting back to your first point here, it's not helpful to blame yourself. Uh, it's important to know that your brain has been manipulated, but it is on you to have the agency to make changes now. Um, it's important to, to appreciate that because you want to know, as you said, that you can still direct your future. It's just a question of, you know, how can you get out of your own way? And how can you recognize the fact that there really are these major influences influences on the way that you have made choices in the past and will continue to make choices. So with that said, the framework I'm working with now, and um, this is not the same framework I was working with when I was seeing patients, is that you want to try to find a mutual goal with a person. And so much of the time I was setting the goal for them. It was, you're going to lower your diastolic and systolic blood pressure. You're going to lose 10 pounds. You're going to uh, improve your blood sugar and your A1C. And if the person, the other person doesn't care about that goal, it's just not going to happen. So the first step to, I think, any sort of pragmatic changing of behavior is to make sure that you're on the same page as far as what those behaviors are that you want to change. Uh, it's one thing if a patient is in the ICU and they have anaphylaxis and you say, we are giving you epinephrine. And they say, probably nothing, but you know, that's a different type of changing an outcome. What you need to understand is that as it relates to behavior change, the goal is not to have one moment of things being different, to force yourself to really power through that instance. It's about compounding interest. So it's all about making the the right behavior or the good behavior. And in this case, I define good as a behavior where your present actions are in sync with your future goals. So to have a good behavior, you want to make sure that it's as easy as possible. Mm -hmm. And that really just means taking away the barriers to making the behavior happen. So it's not about starting writing a 10K every day if you have been sitting on your couch. It's about maybe putting on the shoes. That's it. It's about using habit research and getting these habits, which are kind of another subject, but basically getting these non-conscious programs put into your brain such that they're helping you and not hurting you. And then I think the real key is to look at variables like sleep and nature exposure and exercise and diet and mindfulness 
and to use those in such a way that fits for the person so that they are optimizing their tomorrow brain for better choices. Yeah. Just to, to try to answer your question here, though, a little bit more, mm-hmm. what were the things that really led to people, you know, having the behavior change? Certainly in, in cases, people were very motivated. Um, they had either personal reasons or other reasons that they were very motivated to make change. But I think that when you look at those types of patterns, it can be very hard to generalize those to other people. So I think it's it's really trying to find what personally works for the individual based on the variables that I was describing. Yeah, yeah. And I really agree about doing those tiny little changes because it's a classic form of self-sabotage when you give a person a big task to do because they've got heart disease and they go, well, if it's not, if I can't do all of this, I'm not going to start. And that is classic. It's, it's, it's classic self-sabotage. So don't do the whole thing. Just do this. Just drink your water when you wake up in the morning or just go for a, if you can't do an hour's exercise, do five minutes. And that psychology of just do what you can with what you've got now, I find also it works incredibly well just to get, get success slowly over time because we're pleasure driven. Because if something is too painful and too difficult, it's not going to change. It's not going to, it's not going to happen because that, that primal wiring for the least amount of output for the most amount of pleasure will almost always be our human frailty. I think you're absolutely right. And I think you're really perfectly describing, um, you know, how to apply habits to change your outcomes. There are, there are other frameworks for sure, as far as different variables. And a lot of that relies on the person's internal desire to change. If, person doesn't want to change. There's only so much that, that another person can do. But if you are motivated to make changes, what tends to be the case, and the best example is New Year's resolutions, what tends to be the case is that you have all this motivation, all this excitement, and you try to start it out. Maybe you, you start doing the thing for a week or two, and then you fall off the wagon. And next thing you know, you're back where you started. And so I think in those cases, when somebody says, I am motivated to change my behavior, there are so many things that can be done. One of them, perhaps the best one, is to build habits to sustain the behavior so that you continue to do it even after that initial motivation is gone. But the other ones, um, I have kind of a lot of these. One that I really like is that you're planning for your future self. And it's the expectation that things are going to be challenging for your future self. And you have to do everything you can to make it easy for your future self to accomplish some goal. And, you know, you can think about if it was your child, you wouldn't expect for them to be able to figure everything out. You're going to guide them towards what works for them. Mm -hmm. You you kind of have to do the same thing. We have this expectation that the tomorrow versions of ourselves are going to be completely infallible, right? That even though every morning right now you've woken up and eaten a muffin, that tomorrow you're just going to stop because you said tonight that you don't want to do it tomorrow. There is a gap between who we are today and who we are tomorrow. There's a gap between the person sitting on the couch at 10 o'clock watching another episode of TV and the person that wakes up in the morning and says, I'm so tired. Why did I do that to myself? Again. Why did I expose myself to that blue light? Exactly. Again. Again. <laughs> so bridging the gap between our present selves and our future selves, I think, is the challenge. And There are a lot of strategies that have been shown to work for this. One of the basic ones is just imagining your future self when you make choices today. Just the the concept of uh, imagining, thinking about where you'll be when the outcomes of that decision come to fruition is shown in psychology to lead to more future-oriented thinking. 
So again, there are lots of things you can do, but I totally agree with you in that it's the small things that are going to stick. Mm. One of my favorite techniques is when you're sitting in front of that muffin, uh, is to ask yourself if you can pause for a second and ask yourself the question, is this taking me towards where I want to be or away from where I want to be? Is it taking me towards this where I want to be as a human being or is it taking me away? And if the answer is it's taking me a step back, step away from the muffin. It isn't always that easy, but I think if we can pause between the stimulus and response, we're in with the chance yes. of making that better choice. That's the mindfulness. Um, I think that is absolutely key. It gives you that moment of reflection. I will say though, the biggest key to all of that is making sure you're not stuck having to make the choice in the first place, right? So uh, getting back to the marshmallow test, this very famous experiment where children were given a marshmallow and the experimenter said, I'm going to go in the other room. If you can keep from eating it, then I will give you another one. So you'll get more marshmallows. And then they looked at who was able to do it. And the children who were able to hold out have had better outcomes. But what researchers are now saying is it's not so much about not eating the marshmallow as it is, and, and that would be kind of the willpower idea, sure. as it is having the foresight to move the marshmallow away so you're not looking at it, so that you're not even thinking Tempted. about the marshmallow. That's the key. Yes. So by the time you get there and you have the muffin out on the counter, you've already lost the battle. The key is leave it in the fridge. Don't buy it in the first buy place. It. Throw it away if you have it. Yeah, give it away to someone someone else, someone you don't like very much. Somebody you don't like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. We we are our biggest saboteurs, but I think if it's important enough, we'll find a way. Just to step back, let's chat again about, I mean, autoimmune disease is something that really fascinates me because I have been through autoimmune, I've been through fibromyalgia and all sorts of autoimmune issues uh, myself. And I see with a lot in, in my practice, people who come to me with generalized pain, um, osteoarthritis, uh, Crohn's, not Crohn's disease, um, celiacs, all mm -hmm. sorts and kinds of autoimmune or what we call autoimmune disease. And every single one of them is suffering from some kind of acute trauma or stress. And they all say when they're not stressed, they don't have pain. And this is really, really clear that when we are in the state of fight flight, of hopeless, helpless, uh, we're creating the chemistry that you mentioned earlier that is facilitating a chemical reaction in the brain and then cascading down into the body to facilitate more inflammation, which relates to pain. So in your experience, what are your thoughts around our thinking, our brain, our environment, and autoimmune disease? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question, and you know, I'm I'm not necessarily an autoimmune expert, so I won't be able to to pull in perhaps as specific as what you're looking at here. But what I have been thinking about is trying to better understand the mechanisms of autoimmunity in the first place. And you know, obviously, by definition, it's an immune uh, condition. But when you look at what's happening within the immune system, what you see is that it's basically impaired self-tolerance, which is a complicated way of saying the body starts uh, attacking itself as opposed to what it should do, which is to say, oh, it's okay, we're on the same team. I'm going to direct my attention elsewhere. And when you look at maybe where this might develop, a lot of research is focused on the gut and specifically looking at gut permeability and the... Um, food antigens, as well as microbe antigens that can get through the gut and then activate the immune system and overactivate the immune system such that it 
it ramps up so much that it starts recognizing pieces of the self, which can be coming from even your own cells that get damaged in the process um, or because the immune system is so revved up trying to deal with the outside uh, antigens. So that's the basic idea of it. And, you know, there are two things that I think are relevant as it relates to the way that we make choices. One is it tells me it's very important to try to understand how our gut health is influenced by our choices. And we know that stress influences the gut, that too much stress seems to correlate with increased permeability of the gut membrane. And so it tells me that we really need to be thinking about how do we mitigate stress as a way of maintaining gut lining and as a way of ensuring we don't have too much exposure to these food antigens. Um, so yeah, so again, autoimmunity connected to gut health, and we have to think about how we can keep the gut in a good spot. But the other piece of it is we are influencing our immune system on a moment to moment basis with the decisions that we make. And we talked about food, we talked about stress, but even things like nature exposure, exercise, the amount of sleep that we get are playing a role in defining our immune system as to, is it overactivated? Is it underactivated? Is it self-reactive? Is it too reactive against the outside, which is basically allergies, right? It's overacting to things like dust. So there's a lot that can be said as far as the dietary decisions that we make. There's good research coming out about certain molecules, things like omega-3s. And then more recently, um, we don't have to go all the way into the nutrition stuff, but when you think about food, you have your macronutrients, yeah. that's protein and carbs, micronutrients, mm -hmm. vitamins and mineral. And then you have your phytonutrients, which yeah. is plant-derived molecules. And there's a lot of research going on into the last category, the phytonutrients, mm -hmm. as to how those can modulate our, our immune system in things like autoimmunity. Yeah. So again, to try to pull this back to what's happening in the brain, what's happening with our decision-making and how does that influence uh, whether our cells, our immune cells are auto-reactive or too reactive against outside problems or you know, even under-reactive where we, we get consistent inflammation and infections. Um, I think the real, real key interesting piece of all of this is that, as I said before, the brain's immune system influences the way that we make decisions. So you can get yourself into a feed forward cycle where because your immune system is out of whack, you're starting to think about things differently. And that leads to progression of whatever that immune dysfunction might be. But similarly, coming back to these ideas that I've been describing before, you can think about how to use things like sleep, exercise, food, stress mitigation, like mindfulness and meditation um, as ways to rebalance your brain's immune system, and in many ways to rebalance the immune system throughout your body. So in, in summing up, I mean, we've been speaking for almost an hour now, what would be your top three pieces of advice for anybody, irrespective of what their health condition is, their age, what can you do tomorrow, today, right now, to just make small changes and move you towards a better version of yourself? I would start, number one, with building awareness. And I think regardless of where you are in your journey, this is the key. Because until you start appreciating that the modern world is set up for you to fail, uh, health-wise specifically, it's going to be hard to make the types of changes necessary to be a healthy person. And I've just been reading this book called The Healthy Deviant. And I think it's a great example. Uh, the author really calls this out, which is this unhealthy default reality, which predisposes us to bad outcomes. So first step is, develop awareness, realize that most people are not doing all that well, that if you maintain the status quo, you're going to wind up probably in a bad spot. So you've got to do something differently. 
So that's part one. Then the question is, what can you do to start making that happen? I think here you have a menu, depending on a person's level of intensity. The one that I tend to start with, and I think is probably the best intervention for most people is working on sleep. Because unlike other things, exercise, diet, sleep has a, a very rapid benefit on our cognition, on our health. So even one night of sleep deficit correlates with worse decision-making. Even one night of getting good sleep can do the exact opposite. So I tell people, start paying attention to your sleep. Start by giving yourself that seven to eight hour window of sleep each night. And if you are a male and if you are overweight, highly consider getting evaluated for sleep apnea. Really, most people should be thinking about that um, because it's really a, a huge issue that compromises a lot of different systems in our body. So we said awareness, sleep, and then I think it's um, looking at the individual, looking at what is it that you're motivated to change? Because I think depending on that, it's going to be a slightly different intervention. The one that I would generally go with next would either be nature exposure, because I think it is hugely underappreciated, or mindfulness. Sure. Mindfulness people know about, so I don't usually go with that one. So let's stick mm -hmm. to nature exposure. Mm -hmm. Nature mm -hmm. exposure for 20 minutes once a week is correlated with lower cortisol levels. Nature exposure is correlated with lower levels of inflammation and a better immune response. And by the way, nature exposure is correlated with more future-oriented decision-making, increased mm -hmm. empathy. There's so much benefit to nature exposure. So I would say if you can, get outside. If you can't, get an indoor plant. And if you can't even do that, even having um, some wall art of nature might be a way to start getting some of those benefits. So awareness, mm -hmm. sleep, and nature is where I would start. Okay, that's really, really good advice. Dr. Austin Palmetta, thank you so much for your time. I can't tell you how I appreciate your, your wisdom. One hour does not cover anywhere near the scope of where I'd like to go with these conversations. So I look forward to chatting with you in the future. I think we all know a lot of this, but to hear it in a different context from someone who is so ingrained in behavior change with such a deep understanding of the brain is such a refreshing way of thinking of things. And we all need reminders and just different perspectives. So thank you. I agree. I think it all starts with questioning. And yes. I so appreciate you having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me. You can reach out to Dr. Austin Palmata via Instagram or check out the links on the episode page. If you're enjoying the show, please don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends and family. Also, please remember to rate, review, and even send a voice note on Apple Podcasts or Anchor. Your feedback is extremely valuable. 